and we start recording on this one. And if you need to take some time, take your time. No, we're ready to go. Cool. All right. Uh, Charles Moskowitz here, and my guest is Charlie Robinson, and uh, Charlie is the author of this really interesting book, The Octopus of Global Control. Charlie, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Let's get into it, shall we? <laughs> Let's, shall we? Why not? First of all, how did you, what led you to write this book? Oh, man. So it, you know, it's funny because there should be some, some deep, complicated story about it all. But really what, what led me to write it was a very simple question, um, a conversation I had with my, with my mom. I had discovered some new great conspiracy topic that I had gotten into, and I was filling her in on it. And she just, you know, and she's always such a good sport, and she listened to me about these mm -hmm. crazy things. And, she, and afterwards, she just said, this is, all, this is all great. You've got all this information about all these different topics what are you going to do with it? And I, I didn't, I didn't have an answer. It, it never even crossed my mind that I had to do something with it. I just kind of, I, I just was compiling it in my head and I was interested in the topics, but I never had any sort of plan. And after that, that question, I sort of, you know, I just started thinking about it and I thought, well, I could do a, I could do a documentary. Well, I don't really have the background in film and all that. I could do a podcast. Well, I wasn't really at the point. I now have one, but at the time I wasn't mm -hmm. really ready for that. And I, I just decided, well, I think I can write about it. I think I have a way of, uh, of injecting my dark sense of humor into these dark topics. And I, I think I can find a way to make them, um, you know, while still being respectful of how serious the topics are, I feel like I can do it in a way that also kind of makes it a little bit funny because I had mm -hmm. been, I've been inspired by guys like George Carlin and Bill Hicks and Joe Rogan and, you know, you know, comedians and John Stewart, you know, that, that comedians that had like a understood like the, the political slant and they could tell you a story about it and you would get the gist of the story but you'd still find yourself laughing at it too. So I figured if I could find a way to kind of do that, um, that would be a good part. But then I also remembered that back, you know, I don't know, I think this might've been 2006 or so. Um, I had a, I made the mistake that a lot of us in the, uh, I don't know if you want to, I guess truth community, if you want to use that term, I made the mistake that a lot of us in the truth community make, which is I brought up nine 11 at a Thanksgiving dinner and I watched the, <laughs> watched the table turn on me oh, and I watched God. everybody not appreciate my contribution to the dinner table conversation. And I also realized that because through that, that botched conversation, I realized that um, they saw me as somebody that didn't have any sort of authority to talk about these topics in part because I didn't have any authority to talk on, talk about the topics. You know, I was just mm -hmm. a guy that was interested in it, but, <clears throat> right. but I felt like, you know, you obviously you don't take your notes with you to a Thanksgiving dinner, but I felt like if, if I had that conversation again, what I would have done was I would have brought in the words of not me because they didn't value my opinion on it. Um, this was my in-laws family at the time. Um, they didn't value my opinion on it, but they, they did value other people's opinions. So if, if, so for instance, I felt like if I would say, you know, if, if you heard Henry Kissinger say this, 
Would you believe it? If you heard mm-hmm. David Rockefeller talk about the new world order, would it be more real? What about Bill Clinton? You like Hillary Clinton. What, would, what if you heard Hillary Clinton <laughs> talk about it? So I started, under, I started thinking about that conversation. And when I wrote the book, so the, con, the, 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 the structure of the book was that, yes, I've got my opinions on these topics, and yes, I brought in a dark sense of humor, but then I also brought in quotes from over 500 different people that had like a front row seat to some of these events. Either they were involved in it, or they were witnesses to it, or they had some interesting take on it. So that's mm-hmm. where I was able to pull in some some George Carlin quotes and some sure. Bill Hicks, but also <clears throat> Rothschilds and things like that. The format of the book is is, you know, I'm talking about these eight tentacles of this octopus, but then I'm also peppering it, not with footnotes, but with quote footnotes, you know? So you would, I would talk about how they had had this plan for a one world government, but then I would inject the quotes that, that was them talking about it, you know, behind the scenes and everything. So, so that's how the book came about. And I wrote it in total secrecy because I didn't think I would finish it or I wasn't sure Mm -hmm. if I'd finish it. And, um, and when it finally came out and when the boxes got, de- you know, when the first batch of books got delivered to my house, I and I hadn't told my wife I was writing a book, which is maybe not the best strategy. Um, I left for the day or I was out doing something and the boxes came and my wife didn't know what they were. And she opened them and found <laughs> all these books, a 540 page book, flipped it over on the back. And there's my picture on on the back of it. Oh, and- my. I got home. She threw me out of the house for two days because she said oh I was cheating on her by writing now, the book. Did you did you send a copy to your in laws? <laughs> I did not, but they are they should get credit for for spurring me to write this book. So that's kind of that's kind of how it started out. No, that's so, amazing. You know, I mean, I have I had a similar experience. I don't know where you fall politically, but. Um, after the election, after the last election, I was informed by my in-laws that the Thanksgiving dinner would be a Trump-free zone. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and also, look, I mean, on a more serious note, I mean, writing a book is a and I've written more than 10 nonfiction books on similar topics. It is a great way to really go deep into a topic you're interested in and yeah. fascinated by and and anyone, almost anyone can now write a book with the access to the internet and yeah. Microsoft Word and, and several things. You can write the book. You can self-publish it if you want on Amazon. It could get picked up by a publishing house, which happened with me in one or two cases. And, um, and it's, it's an amazing thing I mean, that what we have access to. Yeah. Now, I want to talk a little about the book itself and your premise. Sure. Um, you weave together a very comprehensive look at what you call the octopus of global control, um, what I think we used to euphemistically call the Eastern Seaboard Liberal Establishment and its interactions with other like-minded establishments around the world. What do you see as the main nexus of, in a sense, the brain of this octopus? Well, it's, uh, well, so the, the octopus, concept is what was obvious was not mine obviously there it went on early you know it's been around for a while and one of the quotes that i used talks about um it's it's a quote from a guy named john francis highland and he talks about this octopus with its sprawling tentacles that have captured the state 
you know, the, the courthouses and the media and the banking and the government. And he's going on this long thing. And he says, let me let me be specific. I am talking about the Rockefeller Standard Oil interest. And when you get to the very end of this guy's three paragraph quote, uh, he's it. It's he's was the mayor of New York City. It was 1922. And the and if you would remove that and put, you know, night uh, 2020, it would his statement would have been as relevant today mm-hmm. as it was 100 years ago. So what it, what occurred to me was that this has been around for a very long time. Um, and in, in the brains behind it is this is this group of uh, banking I hate to use the word elite because it's because there's nothing elite about them in the sense of being good people. They're they're reprehensible people, but but elite in the sense that they consider themselves to be above everybody else. So um, it's these banking oligarchic families that have been around that have uh, like the Rockefellers and Rothschilds. And they're not they're less concerned about um, nationalities and, and, and they're they're. They talk about it in their own works as being internationalist. Now we call them globalists, but but the David Rockefeller talks about himself as being an internationalist. So it's these internationalist type families that have a controlling hold through their interlocking boards of governors and uh, through the corporations that they run, through the the central banking components that they that they are involved in. But it's a fluid situation though, because I think that it's not just that. Um, I think that there's new people being added to this octopus. I think that the new tech oligarchs are going to carry this uh, moving forward. It's a philosophy more so than anything. It's a philosophy mm-hmm. that that they believe they are. Um, they look at themselves as being the people that are making the tough decisions for humanity they are right. they are they are doing the work that needs to be done and that we should actually be thanking them for stepping up to the plate and taking care of this and and we see this we're starting to see this now in a more a more modern uh, context with what what bill gates is involved in and he would definitely be mm. part of this group part, part of, of this that, yeah. a part of this octopus <laughs> And you see him stepping up and saying things like, you know, we, you know, in order to get the, you know, the economy back and get people out, everybody's going to have to take this vaccination. We're going to need to see where everybody is. And, you know, and, and he says it in such a matter of fact way as if like, oh, OK, well, we'll just we'll just follow you. But this is the mentality that they have. They've been in they've been either in control of their large corporate interests. They have tons of money. They have they're psychopathic in nature. Um, they have they, a messiah complex, yeah, I would say. For sure. I mean, they, they believe they, that they and and a lot of them are well-meaning, I, I, you know, but they believe they live in this kind of ethereal bubble that that's resulted from either inherited success or actual success to the point where they've gotten used to power and they believe that they want to reach out and exercise their visions on the rest of us that somehow they're smarter than the rest of us. And uh, while some of them are well-meaning, I think some of them are not well-meaning, the sinister, they nevertheless believe in this kind of informal international governments that uh, by which they leave in place the governments of the world. They leave in place the religions of the world. They leave in place the cultural institutions and the economic institutions of the world, but they would quietly exercise their power to control these things. And um, I think it was Whitaker Chambers in his book, Witness, which is a, one of my favorite books, 
he referred to it as a conspiracy of gentlemen. Mm. You know, it's not like a literal conspiracy where you have a bunch of people sitting around smoking cigars and, you know, drinking scotch, you know, in some right. some wood paneled room somewhere. It's it's a people who are like minded, who think similarly and who hear each other and make sure that that particular type of voice and that particular means of communication is the predominant one that is heard. A perfect example of that is Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. And he's a classic example of somebody who was who was fixing parking tickets. And all of a sudden he's catapulted into the presidency. And he spoke that kind of language, that sort of uh, double talk, that sophistic style where it's all coded and it's mm -hmm. a lot of dog whistles and indirection. And, you know, you hear that when you hear that, it was French uh, scholar Elaine Beniscon who referred to it as the language of totalitarianism. Mm. It's it's not real. And, and the reason one of the reasons that they so much hate and despise Trump is because he doesn't engage in that kind of language. He speaks plainly. He can be crude and certainly he can be cruel, but he's is what it is. It's not. And when he says things, he means it. It's not like I mean, every, you know, uh, Obama, Clinton, they all gave a lot of speak about strengthening America's borders and stopping illegal immigration and that kind of thing. But no, everybody knew they didn't mean it. And if you listen to the way they said it, you knew they didn't mean it because it was couched in this kind of doublespeak. Yep. Whereas with President Trump, he says it and he means it and he's doing it. Yep. So this is a major stick in the eye of this, this establishment tease, this internationalist set that scorns things like sovereign nations and belief in a creator of the universe and individual rights you know, and, and, and has contempt for those things as being backward and anachronistic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and people have always said, well, what are these guys just sitting around, you know, like you said, sitting around a smoky table and, you know, plotting out to, you know, plotting out how to rule the world. It's like, well, they don't need to, they know what's good for them. They understand what works for them. They understand what benefits their industries and they have relationships with other people high-ranking people that understand the plan as well. Do they have meetings? Yes, of course they have meetings. They have Bilderberg meetings and Council on Foreign Relations and Trilateral Commission. They have all of these things. But but above those <clears throat> above those organizations is, is a group of people that understand what works best for them and, and they all understand what does best for them. So they push the, the policies that will benefit them in terms of either making them more money, which is which is not as high on the list as maybe everybody thinks, because when you have access to the, the central banks, you have access to the money. But it's more about controlling the minds of people and 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 shrinking the, the power into as few hands as possible and and playing this game where they make it look like the nation states are, are calling the shots on all of these things and that the presidents are calling the shots. I totally agree with you when when you when you're Bill Clinton or your Barack Obama or, um, you know, or, or George H.W. Bush, that when you watch them speak, there's, there's two, there's two speeches in one. <laughs> there's always two speeches in one. There's, there's mm -hmm. one that goes out to the public. And then there's one that you can interpret much differently based on understanding the words that they use, the phrases that they use, uh, 
you know, the, they, there's even coded, there's coded language. Like when they, when, like the way they use their hands, when they're, they put their thumb on top of their, they make a fist and put their thumb on top and they, mm. they do this. It's a very unnatural, if you watch politicians give speeches, when they do that, it's like a trigger mechanism. It's like, it's like a, it's like waving a big banner that says, I'm lying to you right now. <laughs> I'm lying to you. Well, they, they affect certain mannerisms that are very studied, like the way Bill Clinton would bite his lower lip. I mean, this meant that he actually cared about anyone but himself, which we all know he didn't. Right. And uh, it, I think they practice in front of a mirror how yep. to deliver and how to gesture their arms. I would suggest, and I don't mean that, I'm not trying to say here that they are the equivalent by any means, but I think that one of the public figures that they study as a matter of rote was Adolf Hitler. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, I mean, sure. a master communicator. He knew how to he would start. If you listen to his speeches, he starts very soft and then mm -hmm. he gradually builds and builds. And by the end, he's screaming and gesturing. And it's an emotional. I mean, the tactics were very studied. This wasn't oh, an accident. It was sure. how to hypnotize people, how to it's like a form of wizardry. I mean, yeah. how to create a mass experience you know it's it's something that um, edward bernays speaking of rockefeller <clears throat> i think he was his, his brother-in-law the, the he's considered the father of marketing mm -hmm. he wrote a book called propaganda in the early 20th century where he basically taught americans to have bacon and eggs for breakfast yeah he taught women to smoke mm -hmm. you know i mean there were these Forces kind of, of like, liberty yeah i mean to manipulate um you know the um it was to manipulate emotions and to manipulate people's behaviors yeah. that that was um you know what was all what it was all about i mean it's um you know this is a very carefully studied thing this is the whole art and science of psychology in a way is i'm not saying we shouldn't have it but it's a study of control it's a study yes. of how to manipulate and control emotions both control of individuals, but of masses of, of entire countries. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're right. When you talk about Hitler, if you watch his videos, if you, some of his speeches, he'll step up to the podium and he'll stand there for like two minutes and not say anything. He'll just, he'll just put his hand, you know, fold his hands together and stand there and wait And the, you know, and the crowd is roaring. And after a minute, it starts to get a little calm. And after two minutes, it's silent. And then he starts very mm -hmm. softly. And, he starts and they, they even went so far. This It's an interesting study because they would manipulate all the senses. Like they would manipulate what you see with bonfires mm -hmm. at night. What They would have smells. They would have sounds. They would have, it was kind of like a multimedia experience. And, and people would get caught up in it emotionally to the point where women were fainting. I mean, Obama reminded me of that a little bit. I'm not saying he was like Hitler at all. But... Yeah. There was that same phenomenon, which was not something you generally saw in the United States, where women were fainting at his rallies. Yeah. Now, Trump is the opposite. I mean, it's very freewheeling and he's talking <laughs> bluntly and, you know, he doesn't look at the teleprompter. Sometimes he goes way off the, the edge and he needs to be reeled in a bit. But nevertheless, it's it's I mean, I've been to a Trump rally and it's a very real thing. No one's hypnotized. It's not like nobody worships Trump. It's the, quite the opposite. But they're into like worship of the state and of people and things that represent the state. And they exalt those things and they venerate them almost like they're demigods. 
And uh, that's, I think, part of this whole program of international manipulation and control. Yeah. Yeah. And you see that come out of the Tavistock Institute in the UK, mm. where it's I've just, you know, I just kind of describe that as the culture factory. When people see the Beatles, you know, the Beatles and they they come to America and they're getting off the plane and all those women are screaming and everything. Those women were all paid to be there. I mean, that's a, that was a Tavistock project that they put forth and they use this. And so the psycho, there's a psychology behind crowd manipulation and what works for politicians can also work for rock bands. And Tavistock was di- very heavily involved in this. Uh, yeah. Guys like Dr. Alexander King, who who was one of the creators of um, Na- one of the founders of NATO and was highly involved in this. And so you get these really sketchy characters involved in these institutes and connected to guys like Bernays as well, who create a culture. And then, and they're, I mean, look, for, we have got to give them credit. They're very good at what they do. They, they, right. they know how to get us riled up. And that, that took, you know, they took that to new levels. And then once television came about and was, became really mainstream, um, they went to work on television through the Tavistock Institute and the CIA to to really use that to shape reality. And, and I think it's it's fair to say, especially given what we're going through currently with this coronavirus uh, pandemic situation, that the media, um, in my opinion, is one of the most dangerous components of this mm-hmm. whole octopus because. Oh, and, as, and they do the nightly, uh, you know, like fear mongering, yeah. uh, you know, atrocity kind of reporting and anything but uh, okay my guest is charlie robinson and um, and the book is the octopus of global control it's available at amazon and other locations charlie you brought up the beatles that's a really interesting subject to me i mean look i love the beatles me too i love their music i I think they were geniuses but um you, you know john lennon was always the truth teller in that band and he's the one who said politically he goes look we've been made to be more popular than Jesus Christ. Yeah. You know, and he got in trouble for that. It kind of went yeah. off the reservation a bit, but he was saying something there. I mean, he was like, this is insane. I mean, and he would do when they would appear, he would make Hitler salutes on the balcony when he'd wave to people. And he was, I mean, he totally was like, you know, like letting the cat out of the bag Yeah, with all of that. And then it also is no, is worthy to note that the Beatles as great as they were, and as brilliant as they were, they introduced alternative uh, Eastern religion, and they also introduced drugs. I know I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but they glamorized drug use in the 1960s with their lyrics and their, their actions. And it was followed by other cultural icons as well. I mean, the Stones, of course, the Doors, I mean, you know, various groups. And it was one of the contributing factors to the development of what Aldous Huxley talked about in his Brave New World, you know, that he said in an interview just before he committed suicide in 1963, that the world was going to be turned into a a, a, a drug-induced concentration camp, that we wow. would all be on some kind of controlled substance, and we would become, you know, servile to this, this uh, kind of mass uh, instinct. And so, you know, you can't dismiss the possibility that the Beatles, certainly, maybe even others, might have been conscious and witting participants in this agenda. Yeah. And the work of guys like um, 
um, Mike Williams, the Sage of Quay, who's done a lot of research into the Beatles. Mark Devlin, who's written two books, Musical Truth, Volume One and Two. Uh, mm-hmm. He and I both spoke at at, a, at an Arcapulco a year year ago, and I watched his presentation called No More Heroes, and it was interesting to dig into the background of not just these. really famous musicians but their families you start to realize Mm -hmm. that start to see that like jim morrison lead singer of the doors yes his father was in the cia his father was the admiral of the ship that was allegedly attacked in the gulf of Tonkin in vietnam which is which is what i mean it didn't happen it was a it was an event that didn't happen and so you, you know you start to dig into who are these people and we see this now we we see this um in pop culture with regards to like the Super Bowl halftime shows and mm. the Olympics opening ceremonies. And we see a lot of the one eye symbology of the people, you know, the the famous pop stars that are covering one eye and all this stuff. And at some point, you know, early on, that you got you conspiracy <laughs> theorists are all the same. But but look, there's there it, it doesn't matter to me, but it matters to them. They are sending a message. And you talked about this earlier about how this how these these important families are you know that that ritual and you know the way they they carry on a a public event it it matters to them it comes from their culture of ceremonies and and like witchcraft and luciferianism and all these things that they're really into and and it's right. and it it it's, it matters to so we can be dismissive of it my point is we can be dismissive of all this stuff as just not being, at all you know but they it matters to them and so maybe we should pay attention when you keep seeing the pyramid showing up in all of these music videos or opening ceremonies of the Olympics or the opening mm-hmm. opening ceremonies of CERN or, you know, you're like, why are you having all these? Why are you, know, why are you doing these crazy? Oh, we could do we could do a lot of talk on, on this topic. I mean, I don't even I feel nervous going too far because I don't want to lose my YouTube channel here. Well, listen, but, let's get off it then because it's a real thing. <laughs> I think that probably people who follow me and follow you, Charlie, kind of know what we're talking about here. There's Um, there's plenty of other places you can go and and get deep, deep into that information. That's right. I could do it on my audio show. Um, But uh, I don't know if I want to do it live on YouTube because maybe YouTube might be part of this. I don't know. I'm not saying they are, but you never know. And I appreciate it. Rainbows instead. Um, so anyway, your book is really weaves together all of these various elements to show, as you say, an octopus of control. Yeah. And I think that the three pillars in this is uh, the culture, politics and money, yeah. you know, that um, and, and, and I suppose the fourth estate is religion. Mm-hmm. And they tend to try to gradually over time control the high ground in all of these areas informally by getting into the system, working up the route line. I mean, a good example is the uh, co- complete co-opting of American academe. Oh, yeah. You know, starting in the 1960s and right up till today, liberals gradually worked their way into these institutions and promoted other liberals to come in and got rid of conservatives to attrition to the degree that now, even I think Boston Magazine, and I'm in Boston, they did an article showing that Boston and Massachusetts um, universities are like 97, 96 percent liberal professors. Yeah. You know, it's like there's not a lot of, uh, of diversity there. There's not a lot of dissent. There's a great deal of conformity. And at this point, it's become 
you know, really oppressive. And, and I think that students who go to these institutions, they kind of internalize these things or they've already internalized them. And if they haven't, then they do so pretty quickly because they want to get through it and keep their head low and get their degree. You know, you don't want to buck this kind of system. And um, I don't know, it, it's, I mean, I'll just give an anecdotal situation. Back in 1998, I, I went to Tufts University and got a radio show as a citizen broadcaster. And I was conservative and people there were mostly liberals and they were, came in there with the blue hair and everything else. And, but we had a great time and I would invite people in my show and we would have debate and dialogue. And I had on prominent liberals like Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn and others. Mm -hmm. And then I left that station and I think it was 15 years later in 2015, I came back and decided to do a show and it was like Rumpelstiltskin waking up after having been asleep for 30 years. It was a whole different atmosphere. Nobody would talk to me. Eventually, I was reported to the anti-bias police. And then the <laughs> newspaper did a story on me calling me all kinds of names. And they moved my show to like three o'clock in the morning. Right. And uh, it just was like a very kind of fascistic attitude. I mean, everything had changed. People were afraid. Nobody wanted to stick their neck out. You know, people didn't want to, you know, you're spending 60 grand a year for a college education. You don't want to get in trouble. They had this anti-bias Gestapo that could kick you out of school and could ruin your life. You know, if you didn't uh, goose step to the uh, the politically correct agenda. Yeah. So I think that they've really taken, I mean, again, I agree this is anecdotal, but they really have assumed the high ground in academia at this point. Yeah, they've used tenure as a way to reward those professors that are towing the proper line that they want and use it as, you know, the carrot for others to get on get on board. If you want, you know, it's kind of like the Supreme Court, you know, you, you you give someone a job for life and then you're like, OK, well, you know, what's then you lose all control over them. I mean, there's nothing you can do to them at that point. What are you going to you know, so you've got college professors that are rewarded with tenure for for doing it the way that the university wants them to do it. Then you've got this insanity that has sprung up lately that you're talking about, which is safe spaces and all of this, um, you know, you know, 57 different genders and all this stuff. And if you're if you if you point out the obvious that this is all ridiculous, then you're somehow anti I mean, you're always anti-Semitic for whatever reason, just because. Well, anybody that disagrees with the left is called an anti-Semite by the ADL. Right. And it's nothing to do with Judaism. I, I, I'm a Jew, by the way. And I, I think that they're one of the worst groups. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, you know, if, if you don't goose step to the left, you're an anti-Semite and they can put you under a microscope. I mean, black groups are doing the same thing. If you don't goose step to the left, you're racist. Gay yeah, groups, if you don't goose step to their agenda, you're anti-gay. I mean, it's ridiculous. It, it, it's it's how about. Yeah. How about, you know, how about I'm 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 anti-insanity. You know, I don't yeah. I, I, I went to USC, which is, you know, in, in L.A. And, and I got out of there in 95 and it, there was none of this stuff, you know, but I don't know why I don't you know, I have a daughter who's eight when she decides to go to college, if she chooses that route. You know, I don't I don't want her to be in a school that says, oh, you somebody has called you a bad name well we've got a safe space for you because mm -hmm. then you're starting to teach them that that the world is filled with safe spaces and like listen some of oh this is God. like the, the, oh. 
No, I mean, I was broadcasting at Tufts, as I said, right. I came back uh, during the Trump election and people were like weeping and they they had to set up like safe rooms where people could play with Play-Doh like they had gone reverted back to nursery school. It's crazy. I mean, and, you know, this was a time whether you like Trump or not, we should have been celebrating the fact that we had had a peaceful election. We'd had a change of power, that we have a democracy in the broad sense within a Republican context. And that, that we're going to have a new administration, whether you like it or not. I celebrated, I celebrated when Obama was elected, even though I didn't vote for him, because that's the system. I mean, you know, you go into opposition, a loyal opposition, where you then criticize policies. You don't become the resistance. That's a communist term. You know, it's, it's just anyway. But uh, well, yeah. Yeah. And I had this conversation with Sam Tripoli, who does tinfoil hat and is also a professional stand up comedian. And I asked him, like, do you. Can you go out and play colleges? He's like, no, there's no way I can play a college. He goes, I, I have to make everybody in the audience happy. If I make one person unhappy, they go to an administrator who goes to, you know, who, mm-hmm. who then comes up on stage and, you know, with the the old hook cane thing and just pulls you right off stage. <laughs> who needs that stuff? And, oh, and, it's, and by it's the way, become like I mean, look at they they drove Ben Shapiro out of out of, I think it was you, uh, UCAL. I mean, he's like a moderate conservative guy. I mean, we're not talking about some, you know, real ideologue there. And I mean, they came up with, with pitchforks and burning, you know, they were like crashing the door down. Yeah. You know, it just, it's, it's insane to me, but, um, and very well, this very well could be a product of what we were talking about earlier with this kind of mass manipulation and, you know, the, the establishment using the means of communication, the media and the culture to present something in a way that, that is so pervasive and so, you know, over the top that, that, that people come to, you know, they, they internalize it. They, they are conditioned by it. Yeah. And when you when you want to make a huge impact on society, if you're these maniac controllers and you want to impact society, it makes sense. You know, like Adolf Hitler says, give me give me control of the textbooks and I control the next generation. So there so you've Mm -hmm. got them in infiltrating not just the colleges and universities to get those kids thinking the way they want them to think, but also taking it a step earlier and going after the curriculum of schools. And one of the things that we saw early on was the Rockefellers and Carnegie's putting lots of money into the compulsory schooling system. And now we have Bill Gates in his new version of this. And he's the new, one of the new Rockefellers, you know, hiding behind his foundation. Um, We've got him pushing common core, which is if anyone has taken a look at the common core math component, it is, it is, I don't know any other way to describe it other than intentional disinformation and torture of these kids, because it is so backward that it that it screws kids up not to mention puts us way behind every other country in terms of math um well what they're doing is they've invented a new way to do equations that is so convoluted and complex that that it doesn't get to the basic function of arithmetic yeah where you actually can solve problems it becomes something else that i mean it's creating a a dyslexic impulse and uh, i mean i my, my friend the late Dr. Samuel Blumenfeld wrote many books about this. He used to come on my show all the time. And uh, he talks about how uh, phonics, which is the way you learn English, because English is a phonetic language, and you develop a reflex by which you put vowels and consonants together to form words. It was replaced by look, say, reading, and it was done deliberately. 
by this establishment, starting with John Dewey, who was the father of, quote unquote, progressive education. And what it did was require the new reader to memorize words as if they're pictographs. You have to, it created a dyslexic impulse. You didn't really read, you were guessing and you were like looking at sentences and kind of glossing over them and kind of grasping at their meaning. And uh, the result was, according not just to Sam, but to a lot of researchers uh, who are legitimate people, including this Harvard professor, her name is Casey right now, the result was dyslexia and eventually ADD and other social disorders. Wow. Because, I mean, if you can read, you can become a real independent sovereign citizen. And that was interrupted by this whole rotten, look say, method. And the Rockefellers had their fingerprints all over that one, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, it's really devious what you can do to the kids if you if you take the time to invest in these these education systems. I mean, people don't don't and I didn't realize this either until I started researching for the book that, you know, the the reason why when you're a kid and you're in like and you're in a public school and all the desks are in a, in rows, you know, these single file row, rows and then there's a bell that goes off, you know, when class is over or when school's over. It's to it's that the Carnegies and Rockefellers wanted to create a simulation um, that would mimic the working in a factory because they own the factories and they wanted these kids to go in, get this, you know, like a minimum type education. So that as George Carlin says, they're smart enough to work the machines, but dumb enough to not realize how badly they're getting screwed. Mm. And they incorporate the bells and the 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 factory, you know, the, the desks in a straight line and all these things so that when a kid goes into school, this becomes very normal. And when they get out of school and they go to work at a factory, that also becomes just a continuation of this. And so it's very, you know, you, what you realize is that we maybe haven't thought about it all that much, but they certainly did. They put a lot of time and effort into thinking of how this best would be, would, would shape society for their benefits. And uh, Mm. a lot of what we do and a lot of what we consider to be normal Uh, is normalized because they normalized us to it. You know, it wouldn't normally, yeah. it wouldn't be normal to us if it hadn't been for for the influence of these organizations like the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Institute, and the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And so we see this moving forward. So I think one thing that a lot of us need to be aware of uh, is that sometimes these these organizations that purport to be there for the benefit of humanity are not actually doing the things they say they're doing, but they're actually being run by maniacs that want, uh, that have a very specific agenda and they are shaping reality to fit their needs. And so somebody that thinks, oh, the, you know, the Rockefeller Foundation is out there doing all this great work. No, 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 no. The Rockefeller Foundation was created <laughs> because the Rockefeller family was so hated by society because they'd been, their, or, you know, their companies had treated people so poorly that, that there was a massive revolt against them. And so the Rockefeller Foundation was started with these guys that had an understanding of the, the new concept of public relations and press releases and things like that. And they started working on their image and they started having professionals come in and help them with their image. And now we see, you know, now the average person sees the Rockefeller Foundation and thinks of it as this, you know, foundation for the betterment of humanity. And that's not what it is at all. And so I think Mm -hmm. it's important for us moving forward to understand that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is very similar in that respect as well. Right. No, I think you're right. I mean, they, they might do some good work as window dressing, but the fact is that um, 
it, it, part, part of the 1913 passage of the 16th Amendment, which was the direct taxation of income. And we need to realize that that wasn't the case before that. Before that, the federal government raised money from tariffs and from apportionment from the states. The states would, would do taxes, and it was much more democratic in that sense. This gave the government the right to directly tax your income and also know everything about you from your tax return. But one of the addendums to that bill was the creation of foundations which and nonprofits, which allowed these huge behemoth wealthy families like the Rockefellers and the Brown Brothers and the Harrimans and these industrialists to put their money into these nonprofit silos, which they could then do two things. They could hire their kids, their near-to-well children, and give them fat jobs and friends, and they could use the money to transform society outside of government by influencing and the culture and using money to do that. And uh, yeah, the Rockefellers were part of that. They were a big part of it, but there's a lot of these foundations that have gone on ever since. I think a good source of information on this is David Horowitz from the Freedom Center, wrote a book about it a couple of years ago that really documents how enormous the Carnegie Institute, the uh, Ford Foundation, all of these people, the incredible amount of money they have and how they wield that money to fix our culture in a way that fits their image of how we should be, I should say. Now, again, I'm not saying they don't do all so good work. I like the fact that they finance the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Why not? I'm talking about there's other aspects to it that are, are less visible. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. They've got they've got to do something good. Right. Or else no one will buy it. So, so, <laughs> so right. they, do, they, they go around and they, they do things from time to time that, that benefit people. But more than anything, it's a, you know, it's a tax shelter and it's a it's a vehicle that they use to uh, so that they don't lose all of their their wealth through uh you know once they once they die so it's either easy for them to pass it on to their future generations and all of these all these things so yeah it's it's always a, a very uh suspect uh when you look at, at these large uh organizations that that say that they're out to help humanity look some of them are some of them you know have an intention to do good well, the things. smaller ones are usually the and they actually are. I don't mean to be partisan about it, but the more conservative ones are. And of course, we knew that they were screwed over during the Obama years. They weren't allowed to get taxes and status, thanks to a Lois Lerner, who pled the fifth about 50 times before Congress and who met with Obama and who made sure that suddenly conservatives were waking up and saying, hey, we could do this, too. We can form nonprofits. We can create foundations. And they said, oh, no, sorry, that's not meant for you. But anyway, Charlie, I'm reaching toward the end of the segment. So sure. um, where do you see the present pandemic falling into all of this uh, octopus, if you will? How are they manipulating what is a real disease, by the way? I mean, it's not a this isn't a joke, but I mean, I'm fearful about these these mandarins of the octopus, as you call it. I mean, and then manipulating the situation to suit their image. Yeah, for sure. They'll take advantage of every sort of crisis that they get because it creates chaos and panic and and it becomes this whole, you know, the the problem reaction solution sort of situation. So it, it, it almost doesn't matter whether an event is real or or, you know, faked, staged or, you know, uh, not not as organic as it appears, because 
the damage that's done as a result of it is what really matters because we're seeing things like, um, you know, everybody's lining up to just loot the government as much as they can. You've got big business asking for money. You've got, you've got industries that have, you know, that, that should never get government handouts or tax breaks or things like the cruise line industry, when they register all their ships mm-hmm. in Liberia and in Western Africa and then the try Kennedy and, center. What's that? The Kennedy Center got $27 million. Right, right Harvard right. got a big chunk of money. They've got more money than, than the Vatican. I mean, they've got like a, a, what is it, like a $60 billion endowment, and they're taking money out of that. Yeah, anybody that, you know, everybody sees this opportunity and they go. Although they, oh. they did return it after it became public. But. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They had, <laughs> but but that's actually surprised me that they returned it because I would have expected them to just pocket it. But but everybody's got their hands out in situations like this. The um, big pharma, which is, which I don't trust at all. Um, they're deeply involved in this, of course, with Bill Gates. Well, they um, want to make, I mean, I, I think that's why they are discounting hydroxychloroquine which, by the way, from what I understand, is very effective and very low risk. But the problem with hydroxychloroquine is it's cheap. It's, it's been on the market since the 1930s or 50s. And it, but it, you, can, you can get a, you know, a one month supply for 20 bucks. Yeah. The drug companies aren't going to make money on that. No. You know, so, so, you know, they don't want that. They want to have like these new expensive things that, you know, they, they can put on the market and the stock price goes way up and, You've got these, uh, you know, the, the vaccines, which are very questionable, yep. and, and they end up really cashing in on it and then raise the price of Medicare and, and uh, you know, health care goes up because the, it all gets billed to the government. But anyways, Charlie, again, let my listeners and viewers know where they can get your excellent book. Oh, sure. You can get the book at uh, Amazon. If you like the paperback version, you can get it at Amazon or you can get it at barnesandnoble.com. If you like the digital version, you can also get it there or you can get it at my website, which is theoctopusofglobalcontrol.com. And uh, I have a podcast called Macro Aggressions, which is on Apple Apple Podcasts and Spotify and iHeartRadio and also on David Icke's new video platform called Iconic. So oh. um, you can check that out. But yeah, any... any um, Anybody that wants to connect with me can do so through the website as well. And and let's not go shape shifting anytime soon either. No, we will not. Um, <laughs> we will not go shape shifting. <laughs> no, I like I like David Ike. Anyways, uh, Charlie, listen. Thanks for joining me. I'll put a link up to all of your sites uh, on the YouTube channel as well. Awesome. Thanks and, so much. And Charles. I appreciate it. I appreciate you reaching out. All right. Have a good one. Thanks. You, you too. Bye. All right. Bye bye. All right, Charlie, I'll send you a link to YouTube once it's up. Right on. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for reaching Thank out you. to me. This is fun. I like. I, yeah. love, I love talking to interesting people. <laughs> yeah, me too. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks, man. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.